podcast from Crew and Mike is, I think it's really cool and um, that is what I wanted to say. Two and a mic. Speaking with Shirley Franklin is, quite frankly, an education. I would ask her a question expecting a measured political answer, much like those we see on TV today. But instead, I got dynamic, inspiring, informative and relevant responses on how to create, in turn inspire and communicate. She speaks as a person who cares for the whole community not just a few people within it that represent this or that demographic. She talks about the future, the challenges, the weaknesses and strengths, and she knows, you can hear it succinctly, she knows what townsfolk and city folk need to become better, happier members of society. Shirley Franklin served as mayor of Atlanta from 2002 to 2010. She championed policies that targeted the quality and livability of Atlanta, through improvements to the sewage system and reducing the budget deficit. She was a green mayor and for her efforts she was considered one of the best leaders of 2005 in the US News and World Report. Shirley's achievements are well documented and there's no need for me to list them. They simply speak for themselves. I have had nothing more than a 30-minute talk with her and she struck me as one of the most intense, intellectual and knowledgeable people I've ever had the chance to speak with. Listen out for Shirley's pragmatism. She doesn't simply theorise about some far-off utopia. She talks about realities and states of being, and how they need to be either built up, supported, or in the case of some communities, created. Chris, thank you for creating this opportunity, and thank you, Shirley, for giving up your time to speak with me. Enjoy. How are yeah, you? Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. I'm good. Thanks. And how are you? I'm well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for so yeah, graciously uh, accepting the invitation to join me on my podcast. It's really kind and generous of you to share your time. Um I get I guess you don't get to see Chris too much, do you? Uh actually I see him a lot more than I did when he was living in the States. <laughs> That's because he's running away from me all the time. Um, well, because yeah. when he comes, he stays a while. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's better for you. But uh, you're all together. It's, um, it's for Thanksgiving, right? That you're together at this time? Yes, it is. It is. We get together for Thanksgiving. We get together whenever we can. But Thanksgiving is one of our annual trips. Yeah. How come Thanksgiving is so special? Because we don't have this in the UK. So this is purely an American thing, right? Uh, yes. Thanksgiving is an American holiday. Uh, it has a lot of legend around it, but it has developed into one of our biggest family holidays. And it's not associated with any religion. It's all about um, not just saying thanks, but gathering with friends and family, usually over a good meal. 
uh, and a lot of um, kind of games and sports and things like that. Yeah, we, we get to see lots of pictures of turkeys and so on coming out of the of the U.S. Um, Chris is a really good cook. Did he did he prepare the turkey this year? No, he did not. We did not have turkey. We had grilled fish and um, um, beef Wellington and um, other foods, but we didn't have the turkey. We'll have turkey for thanks for Christmas in Atlanta. Uh -huh. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. It still sounds wonderful, whatever you had. So uh, yeah, great. Um, yeah. When, when Chris said that you would be available to talk, I mean, I had like 101 questions that came up, but obviously we don't have time for even a few of those. Um, but looking at, having seen some of your profile, um, I, I've seen that you you obviously grew up and lived through a lot of crazy, turbulent times. Um, and if you were to compare the kind of life that you had then with society today that you see in, in the USA, well, what kind of things do you think about? What, what thoughts come to your mind? Well, in some ways, I grew up in the 1940s and 50s in Philadelphia, which was a one of uh, America's oldest cities, as many um, of your viewers will know. And um, family, um, most activities were built around family, religion, usually church or n not so much mosque and synagogue at the time or temple, uh, and neighborhoods. Um, people shopped in their neighborhoods. Many people worked in their neighborhoods. You went to school in your neighborhood. So you really had a close sense of uh, family, extended family, beyond um, uh, that was not really beyond a physical ge geographic area, almost like a small town within a lot of small towns within uh, a larger city. Today, people have such mobility uh, that one of the big differences is that there's a lot more interaction across race, across um, interests across geographic area. Um, people work in in Georgia, in Atlanta, people work 40, 50 miles from home, which was very uncommon um, in the 40s and 50s. So I think that brings both opportunity and challenges. This new lifestyle brings both opportunity and challenges. It brings opportunity because all of us have a much more wider view of the world because we're interacting with people from all backgrounds more consistently and regularly, largely through employment and and business. Um, but the challenge is you, we've lost that sense of belonging um, in a neighborhood or an extended family. Uh, and that has created a lot of tension among young people, but also in the political arena as well. Yeah, I mean, I've read a few, uh, I've read through um, Hidden Figures, I've read uh, Becoming, um, and you know, these are stories which, when you read about them, community, the sense of community is an integral part. Um, so do you feel that that's becoming sort of watered down, it's becoming diluted nowadays? No, I think that we have to work harder to create it. And there are neighborhoods and there are organizations and your young people in the in the United States are connecting largely uh, electronically. I mean, they're on Zoom together, they're sharing stories together, 
and their network is much wider and they're using technology. Those of us who are a little older don't use that as much. We really miss the the face-to-face contact. But what we're finding in Atlanta and throughout most Southern cities is that there really is this um, re-emergence of neighborhood connectivity. People are wanting to move. So when you have a place that is considered a healthy neighborhood, in other words, it's safe, it's affordable, you have access to um, all of the amenities, whether it's a school or grocery store or place of worship. I mean, when you have all of that in one place, we're finding that the, the property values are higher there because people are looking not just for a neat place to live, but they're also looking for a place that they belong or can belong and contribute. Um, and that's presented a, a whole new set of challenges um, because many of the places that they're moving into um, are places that traditionally have served low-income people and they're being pushed out further and further outside of the inner city. So when in the United States, we call it, they call it gentrification. Unfortunately, there's no set, exa- set definition for that, but let's just suffice it to say that the demand for in-town living, even if it's in a town or it's in a city, the property values have really skyrocketed in the last 15 to 20 years, making it harder for people uh, with limited incomes, whether it's senior citizens on fixed incomes or people who are just starting their career to find a place to live close to work, close to the amenities. That was not the case when I was growing up in the 40s and 50s. Yeah, I mean, and you've managed um, in many ways the, the development of communities in some of your p- political positions, unless I'm mistaken. Um, how much of that of your time was taken up in this sort of really detailed level of attention to local communities and so on? Well, I'd like to tell you that I was the I, I was really just a team player in many ways. Sometimes I was the key team player. But most of the time, there was a team of people. And what we found about 25 years ago in Atlanta is that you can help communities rebuild themselves, but it needs to be a mix of public and private engagement, as well as local residents. And it needs to be, I'm going to say, stratified or tiered. In other words, the availability of housing uh, and top quality education needs to be available to people regardless of their income and regardless of their background. And we've, the program was started in a community called East Lake. Um, East Lake community was known as Little Vietnam in the 60s and in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and it's now the villages of East Lake and it's really developed into a mixed income community where low income people who require government subsidy for housing and for other services. Uh, as well as middle and some uh, upper middle uh, income people all live together. They go to the same schools, the same churches, the same grocery stores. They walk the same streets. They get to know each other um, as neighbors. From outside of the USA, we get obviously bits of news here and there, and usually that that news is highly politicized. So depending on which news source you speak to, you, you kind of get a very... Um, how should we say a limited view um, of how life can be and we we always get this feeling that 
communities in the USA are highly divided politically, uh, racially, or um, class status. Um, but what you're saying doesn't seem to be the case. So we're getting really bad information, right? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying we're working against what you've described. In other okay. words, there are not-for-profit, for most part, not-for-profit, and a few for-profit developers who have developed something called neighborhood development. And I will guess that there are probably three to 400 communities like this spread across the United States, but not in every state. Um, even with that, in a city like Atlanta, there are three such communities. Um, but there are another nine that are completely disinvested by government and the private sector. So we have a long way to go. But we do now have models for doing this kind of work. And an acceptance, um, a broader acceptance among political leaders uh, and some private sector leaders that this is a better way to build in the United States. You just don't build housing separate from schools, separate from um, centers of commerce. You try to build it all together. So we have something else called transit-oriented development and where we are trying to build um, housing, mixed income housing uh, along our transit system, which in a city like Philadelphia, you know, I grew up in a city that had transit a hundred years where Atlanta has had transit since the 70s, uh, 1970s. So um, the larger cities have a lot more of that where, trans where there's development that is mixed income along the transit line. Um, racial issues continue to be an issue in the United States. Issues of um, discrimination against women, women's rights, um, uh, LGBTQ, um, uh, people with disabilities. Any difference can cause a problem. Um, and unfortunately, we have a long, long history of racial discrimination uh, and class discrimination. So we're fighting against that. Um, I consider myself having a baton in one hand, ready to pass it to the next generation. When I mentioned the the, the book earlier, Hidden Figures, a smile came to your face. Um, do you feel that uh, that book and then the subsequent movie finally gave some recognition to the women, the African-American women, um, who did so much at the time uh, to sort of bridge the gap between uh, should we say different kinds of communities, uh, but also proved um, how great the potential is um, of uh, diversity. I smiled in part because both books were about women, so I was really proud of you for that. <laughs> so, but I, <laughs> but I also smiled because um, Chris's grandmother and my aunt was a generation of women right behind those women in what the work that she did in terms of programming and computer technology for the federal government. And had it not been for the Catherine Jacksons and others who opened the door, I'm not sure what her career would have been uh, as a young woman at 18 and 19 years old. So it's those doors were open for several generations and still opened. Unfortunately, um, as important as it is to tell the history, and those are both historical uh, accounts of a period, our first, first uh, Black first lady and um, 
these brilliant mathematicians. Um, unfortunately, we Americans know that they've been brilliant, African-Americans and women throughout history. We just have chosen to ignore them. We've chosen to ignore them in the history books. We've chosen to ignore it in our politics. I mean, we still have not had um, a woman president uh, in the United States. And we say we're the land of the free and opportunity is available for everyone. Um, so I live in a state that hasn't had a woman governor. Um, and I think we haven't had a woman senator, U.S. senator. So there are many barriers still in the United States. And um, talking about the history is great, but actually ensuring that we're removing the barriers that keep the current generation from moving forward is, I mean, should you have to be as brilliant as those women in order to get a job and an opportunity? The answer is no. You shouldn't have to be um, as brilliant as they are to be treated fairly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I couldn't agree with you more. And to be honest, when I was reading through some of the uh, the achievements that you had, I thought to myself, wow, um, you know, love that policy, love that policy, love that policy. Um, you were very much uh, an environmentalist leader, perhaps well ahead of your time. Um, how did that come about? Well, I've always been, I've, I've been an outdoor person for a long time. I Growing up in Philadelphia, we were outdoors all the time year round. I was one of those children who liked to be out in the elements and enjoy the outdoors. I learned to camp very early in my life. You know, my first overnight camping trips by myself with other groups of girls was at seven years old. So I'm in the mountains and outside. So I've had an appreciation for the outdoors and the environment for a long time. But as mayor, <clears throat> I met the EU ambassador to for uh, climate. Uh, while I was mayor and he came to visit and he asked me a couple of key questions. The first one was, why in the world is the United States not taking the environment seriously? And then we talked about it. And I recall that we had a, a mayor out in Seattle who was trying to lead that effort um, around the Paris um, treaties and accord. And he rounded up a group of us as mayors and said that we could be not just the voice, but we could be activists in the area. And the agreement we, we made under the U.S. Conference of Mayors was that each of us would go back to our, to our hometowns. And there were 40 to start, 40 of us to start. We'd go back to our hometowns and we would start to study the issue and start to implement policies at the local government level that we hoped would drive the federal government, our federal government, our U.S. government, to consider climate and environment uh, in a broader sense. So one of the things that I did was I took my cabinet of 15 or 20 people um, to see Al Gore's movie one, one afternoon during work. And they were all like, well, we don't want to go. I'm like, well, no, we're all going. The police chief, the fire chief, the corrections, the planning folks, airport manager, and I said, look at this. I mean, this is our world that we're destroying. And each one of them came up with initiatives in their departments. And we just started trying things. Um, I had the first office of sustainability in, 
in city government. It's much larger, much more engaged now. Um, started celebrating um, Earth Day, which sounds really pretty pedestrian today. But, you know, 20 years ago, we started celebrating in a big way and in gathering all of them, um, the environmental activists and, and um, scientists who would want to be a part of our conversations. So I got drawn into it because the, the EU, um, you know, an ambassador came to visit and said, you know, America sucks on this. Why don't you do something about it? You seem like you're a smart lady, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned the um, the Paris Accords. So President Obama signed up for the the Paris um, Accords with regards to um, climate control. Um, and then uh, the next president decided, no, no, I don't want to have that. Um, let's get rid of that. Um, so clearly, this is a kind of policy which requires um, cross-party support, doesn't it? Um, but so many people on one particular side of the aisle are against that. Um, do you know why that is? Oh, I think some of it is just strictly politics. It's certainly not science. I mean, you know, there's some people who just say they don't believe in science, which is ridiculous. So, I mean, we can't even deal with that contingent, <laughs> which is, but the fact of the matter is that's why mayors thought that they could be so instrumental in this is because our feet are on the ground. Many of us run water and sewer systems. We run transit systems. We do land, we do um, land use planning. Uh, we do development planning. I mean, we we are intimately involved in the elements that affect or the components that affect uh, climate and the environment. We run airports. I mean, how you build roads, whether the road is porous or non-porous. I mean, there's uh, whether there's erosion control. If you're along the coast, obviously, it's along our coastal areas are. But even if you're in um, a community like like ours in Atlanta, which really doesn't have any underground aquifers, um, but has a huge highway system. I mean, if you're not paying attention to how you are building highways, um, then you are producing flooding, you are producing unstable environment um, for the people who live and work in your community. So, um, I, I mean, you've, you've tapped onto something I mean, there are a lot of issues to talk about, but I actually believe that that environment is an issue that really needs to be at the top of the heap. I mean, I, I, I believe we need to do all the other things people talk about that you read about, about the United States. But um, if we're not careful to do something and to, do, to be bold on the environment, um, the world that we live in, and especially the places that we live right now in the United States are not going to survive. There are a lot more mayors now and who are active in this. But mayors consider themselves spokespeople for the people. And we believe that um, the hardest job is to be a mayor and also the most impactful in terms of what people see on a day-to-day -day basis. They like the president or they don't like the president, but they know who the mayor is. Okay. And they can, I suppose, uh, there's a greater chance of interaction, isn't there, with the mayor than there is a president? Well, I would say, yes, there's a lot more. I mean, there's no, almost no chance to interact with a federal official uh, compared to a local official like a mayor or a county, a county manager or a county official. People who are in the same, live in the same place you live, 
who use who are out and about who open their offices. Um, I did something called open um, meet the mayor night for eight years, once a month, and anybody could come in. No, no appointment, no um, time limitation. And we'd have 20 to 25 people come and they came for all kinds of reasons. Some people came, I mean, one couple came and brought their daughter. Neither one of them were college graduates or university graduates. And their daughter had been accepted at several colleges and they wanted my advice on what would be the best college for their daughter. Now, try having that conversation <laughs> with anybody other than a mayor or a local official. I mean, that would yeah. have been out at the door, right? That would have been screened out at the door. Um, someone else was concerned about our son's health and wanted to get ideas about how to interact. So, I mean, I, even though I didn't have all the answers, I often was able to refer them to people who could help them. Yeah, there, there's a lot of uh, talk that we get as well about the, the American healthcare system in general, um, social security, it's perhaps not very high up on the political agenda, it's expensive, there are many different policies and so on that could be, um, I suppose, at some point referenced. Um, but whenever I speak to people about what their opinions are on the USA, they, they say, oh, I couldn't live there because uh, you only get 10 days holiday for your first job. Uh, medical care is expensive. If you don't have insurance, some people can't afford the insurance. Um, how politicized are these topics at the moment, do you think? At the moment, they're not as politicized because we just went through general elections across the country. They're not as politicized, at least you would, if you look at our U.S. Senate elections, um, the senators who support it, who support Social Security, who support um, a higher um, federal contribution for education, uh, especially university uh, and college education, who support um, humane immigration and smart immigration laws, all of the Democratic senators um, with the exception of one who were incumbents, who had supported the policies that you've described, got reelected. So if in fact the country was so divided, they would have been booted out of office. So that's a good sign. Um, the second thing is, to some extent, the question is, how do you get educated about the issues in the United States? Do you rely exclusively on internet news, or do you rely exclusively on network news, or do you rely just on your friends and family to tell you? I mean, I don't know that we do as good a job as we need to on civics and the role of the individual in helping to understand the issues and therefore not only understanding them and then shaping them by their own actions. So sometimes people get really crazy and just run on one issue. Um, but for the most part, our political leadership are much more thoughtful folks than that. I, are you, or not necessarily afraid, but are you concerned that there are some states in the USA where they refuse to teach critical race theory in schools? It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And I live in one of those states in Georgia. I mean, forget critical race theory. Let's just teach American history as it happened. And it is well documented. We don't have to call it anything. Let's just talk about a balanced view of and and world history, frankly. 
Can we teach world history and uh, American history with all of its warts and problems? Can we talk about Indians, Native Americans, uh, Latinx, African Americans, Caribbeans, immigration, as, as opposed to glorifying how wonderful things are with the ex with and excluding all of the problems that people have, have had to overcome in order to be successful. Yeah, this is a similar problem that we have in the, the United Kingdom, for example. I mean, they never talk about the, the horrors of colonialism and um, all of the suffering that was caused. So I, mean, I can, having done a bit of reading on the USA, for, you know, I was extremely surprised when I read that uh, Thomas Jefferson, for example, had, what, 600 slaves um, and yeah, so many. Yeah. Well, I mean, all of it. I mean, you can go all the way back to slavery or you can go before that to you know the slaughter of the natives who lived here there's a lot of legend around thanksgiving about how you know the native people and and the and and the explorers basically they were explorers got together and they just had this peaceful time really that's not i mean it's a good holiday to have don't misunderstand me. <laughs> but, but this um this notion that all was well is ridiculous um but that's okay because i think younger people both in the uk and really around the world are demanding more truthfulness in the information uh, and, and from those who are providing the information and the media and the and frankly technology and the internet allows that because you can have different conversations than the mainstream um and mainstream media um and <laughs> yeah I, I live in a state just like that that actually thinks that if if a child is uncomfortable with the history lesson therefore the history shouldn't be taught how long can that last i, I think it's really going to be a blip on the screen yeah, I hope so. Um, there is a, a lot of uh, there are a lot of efforts to um, sort of revolutionize the educational system to be able to highlight some of these uh, you know parts of history um, you know, without ac acknowledging some of the horrors that are committed by you know the governments that of the past. Um, some people are afraid that these horrors will be repeated. No, absolutely, we need to be afraid of that. I mean, you know, fear can be a motivation for change. Um, so yeah, we need to be afraid that generations after us will be, um, uneducated on the truth about the history and could in fact repeat, um, some of that. And we see that, we see that in police brutality in the United States, um, targeting African-Americans and, and Latinx. Um, we see it in terms of the funding that's available for um, uh, for families who are the descendants of those who were, I mean, it was in the 1940s, I was alive when the US policy was put in place that did not allow African-American soldiers who came back to the United States to be equal in their, um, ability to buy a home into their ability to get a job in wages etc really 
I mean, I'm 77 years old. I was born in 45. And those soldiers came back and some of them were beaten and killed, but many of them had to do menial, menial jobs after being a part of um, a freedom effort, so to speak, uh, in Europe. Yeah, I remember in one of the chapters that I read in, in Hidden Figures, there was a family that were moving from one state to another and they sort of drove through the night and uh, the, the, the father of the family stopped uh, countless occasions to see if uh, he could put up his family in a hotel and uh, it took a long it was a long night before they actually found a hotel that accepted them um exactly. that's just the horrifying uh, reality of the, of the times um one last i know you have to run off um so i don't want to take up your time you've got some you know important holiday time with the family and uh, i completely respect that um before you you struck a very positive note with regards to the education of the youth and so on generally speaking are you more positive going into uh, the 2020s with regards to the next generation uh, than you were when you became mayor? I am very positive about youth. I think the youth that we're seeing in the United States and what I read about in other countries are much more prone um, to that kind of activism. I'm now talking about peaceful, nonviolent, uh, activism based on fact and research and bonding together um, in the interest of human rights than I have seen since the 60s. Brilliant. Um, Shirley, thank you very much. Um, your thoughts, your your opinions, your your historical knowledge. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I'm just really happy to have had the chance to speak with you. So thank you for your time. Thank you very much. And you have a wonderful day. and a mic.